I think that's really what differentiates our show is just that we put as much time into preparing the podcast as I think most writers put into writing an article. We want to enable you to download as much data about the NBA from our mouths to your brain as possible in a one hour or 90 minute show. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Now, today is the last part in our three-part series of episodes about people that have turned topics they're passionate about into businesses. Today's guest is actually the podcaster that I've listened to the most this year. His name's Nate Duncan, and he's the founder of the Dunk Don Basketball Podcast. And I'll play a, a quick clip of the show so you can get a taste for it. This clip features his co-host, Danny LaRue. This was me one of the greatest NBA games of my lifetime, both in terms of the pregame stakes and then what it actually lived up to. So Danny, this was just at least I think a top five most important game in NBA history that we were just at. Absolutely. And I think an important piece of context here is what Cleveland did over the nature, the, the entirety of their comeback. So Now Nate's only been history, podcasting for a little over a year and he's turned it into a full-time living. I find it to be a very inspiring story and a great show. I mean, this is the show that so many NBA fans were craving. So in this episode, we're going to hear the story about how Nate started his show, grew his audience, transitioned out of a career as a lawyer, and became a full-time podcaster. Now, some quick things on the terms we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the NBA, which is the National Basketball Association, the most popular basketball league in the world. It's based in the United States. We're going to talk about the CBA, which is the Collective Bargaining Agreement. This is the document that sets the terms for how players and owners of teams share in the profits of the league. We're also going to talk about front offices. The front office is how you refer to the management of an NBA team, and that'll include things like the owner of the team, the general managers, and so on. Yes, for my fellow Hoop fans, there's a lot of basketball talk in this episode. There's also a lot of interesting insights about how he went about monetizing his podcast and what he might have done differently if he was starting all over again. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. If you want to check out the show notes to everything mentioned in this episode, you can go to tropicalmba.com slash basketball. I start this conversation by reading a quote back to Nate that he wrote just over a year ago. So a year ago, you wrote, I still practice law and really enjoy it. My field isn't related to basketball at all, and I avoid mixing the two. I balance them by having zero life outside of basketball and law, and not sleeping that much, especially from April to July. <laughs> so April to July is playoffs. What happened in the last year? How has your life changed? Well, in October, I decided that I was going to 
quit being a lawyer and just focus on being a journalist, mostly podcaster full time. My girlfriend was very helpful in kind of encouraging me to do it. And, you know, we were going to kind of live life on the cheap together. And also another thing that was an influence for me is I actually had an interview with an NBA team for a salary cap position, which I didn't get. But at that point, I felt like I was just so into the world of the NBA. And frankly, that I wasn't as enthusiastic about the law as I had been. I felt like just with the duty that I had to my clients that I just wasn't able to summon the same enthusiasm. And so I think from that respect as well, I felt like I needed to really take some time try to focus on this full time, which really it needed to be because doing a five day a week podcast during the regular season and working as a lawyer probably wasn't a sustainable model either to have the type of preparation that we wanted to have for the episodes and not, you know, be staying up till one in the morning every night and then going to work the next day at eight just wasn't something I could do over more than like a two or three month period. So I decided to wing it and see if I could make my living this way. So how did that conversation go when you were like, I'm going to do a podcast, I'm leaving? Well, they had been very supportive of my endeavors, which I'm always to be very thankful for. I think they started to kind of see the writing on the wall with that. I think we always talk, we're friends about how well the show was doing. And, you know, they knew that I had interviewed with a couple of teams as well. So I think they knew that we were going in that direction. And we had a big case that was going on at the time. So I said, Hey, as as soon as this case is over, basically, I'm going to leave. And then that case ended up settling. And so that's when I started doing the podcast full time in October of 2015. I remember like a year ago, I forget exactly the date I stumbled on your show. How did you find it? By the way, do you remember? Well, strangely enough, basketball podcasts just weren't that good. Given how popular the sport is, I just, I wanted more. And it was Bill Simmons who has really interesting takes on the game and he's fun to listen to. And there wasn't so much else that I was really into. I'm on iTunes all the time. So I came across it and I remember I was like, this is my podcast because you guys were like opening up secrets to me. This is a knowledge that just did not exist before I listened to your podcast. I didn't know anything about the CBA, like how the league ran. I felt like you guys were kind of opening up a treasure chest about this game that I love. And I'm curious, like, how did you find this information? You know, I played high school basketball. I loved basketball. I always played pickup, which I think is somewhat important, at least from a scouting standpoint. I think where I start is just thinking even though I'm old and broken now of just like all right if I were this guy's size like how would I try to guard him I think or how would I try to score against this guy I think that sort of from the individual matchup level that's sort of where my analysis begins then I started reading guys like John Hollinger very early on even before he was at Sports Illustrated he had a site called alleyoop.com reading true hoop and it got to the point where i would just read two two and a half hours every day about the nba that's how i spent a lot of my time i obviously watched a ton and started to just develop my own opinions but i never really had that many people around me who were really into the nba but i had one friend who actually finally encouraged me to start writing about it and as i started writing i just realized how much of everything that i'd read and watched i had retained and i think that was just because i loved it I retained so much of what I had read. That wasn't the CBA. The CBA, though, I had to actually just teach myself. My approach was basically the same as for studying for the bar exam, which I had done a few years earlier. So I made a bunch of flashcards, which I later made public. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I worked out in the East Bay, so I had about a 45-minute commute. I recorded my own voice reading the cards and then listened to it on my commute for about a six-month period 
And being a lawyer, I loved the sound of my own voice. That made it a lot easier to learn it. And so after I had really put the time in, then I decided to make those cards public and sort of try to put myself out there as a CBA expert. I think that's part of the reason that your podcast was so appealing is so much of what you see in the media is produced to get attention. It feels like to me and what you guys were levying is like these really substantial critiques against teams. Like almost I could imagine you in the front office of a team saying, look, I've taken a look at this. There's some serious problems here. And he put up some great superficial stats in the playoffs last year. But I I mean, to me, he was the number one guy that they needed to upgrade. They clearly needed the upgrade, especially defensively. I'm not sure what else he really does at an above average level for a center. How did you find yourself in a front office interviewing for a job? Well, I didn't get it, so we don't want to celebrate it too much. But (laughs) just because I think I'd kind of put myself out there and knowing people in the industry as well, I think that's been a big part of why I'll go to all these events. Number one is obviously to see the players there. But also, every time you go there, there are people who work in the NBA who are there and you get to start having conversations and get people to know you, look at your work, then they can start to recommend you as well. And so in the media world or people who actually work for teams, you just like any other industry, you sort of develop a network, you have conversations, people hopefully begin to believe that you know what you're talking about. They look at your public work, which I mean, that's one nice thing about trying to get work either in NBA media or for a team is that you can just basically put all your work up there publicly. And that can be your resume in a way that Let's say if I were applying for a lawyer job or something, you don't really have that, that you can develop a public reputation in that way. So that's been helpful as well. Do you think your work has influenced the NBA or teams in any way? Do you have a suspicion? My own personal work? I wouldn't go that far. I know that there definitely are people who work for teams who listen to the show and I'll hear from them on occasion. No one has ever come to me and said, hey, this suggestion that you had was a great one. We decided to implement that. And I don't think anyone ever would do that. But everything that we read Sometimes even I think when it's stuff that we wish it wasn't influencing us, influences us to some degree of just what the conventional wisdom is or just another course of action to consider or, hey, this is something that we might want to change about our process. So I would hope that just because I know that at least some people in the league are reading and listening to my stuff, that it is having some sort of an effect beyond that sort of more macro way of it, I don't know whether you've ever influenced any specific courses of action or not. I would say probably not. I think it's fascinating when you look at a a story like yours, because a lot of times people will be scared to get into like a very competitive space. And you look at something like the NBA, it's this global brand. How could there be a space for one more journalist? Did you ever think like that? You know, there's ESPN, there's Sports Illustrated. How can you find a space for yourself? It's interesting. I think I just by doing it more and more, I started to get a little bit of confidence to it. My initial idea was that I wanted to start this blog and actually not even necessarily write about the NBA. I had this book idea, which I'll keep to myself in case I want to write it someday. But I felt like I wanted to just develop a little bit of a following so that I could then have some sort of a way to market this book. And then I soon realized that I was much better at analysis than I was any sort of more prose-based writing, I guess you could say, storytelling. So I stuck with it. And then once I started to meet people and I felt like I was doing a pretty good job and that I had a good knowledge base, I continued to develop my knowledge base. It, It happened so incrementally that it didn't seem as crazy at each individual step. But I always try to remember that, look at where you came from. If you talk to like 2010 Nate Duncan and told him that this is where you are now in life, this is what you do for a living, 
that he would just be so happy and so ecstatic. And, you know, everybody, no matter what you do in your life, you're going to come up with various things where setbacks or just having a bad day or whatever. And I always try to remind myself on those days that like you're doing what you love. This is awesome. Like you would have never thought that this was possible and just enjoy every day as much as you can. What was hard about it? It seems like you transitioned pretty smoothly. What were the hard parts of this for you? Well, definitely, I would say having a couple of interviews with teams where I didn't get the job, that definitely was something that I'd be kind of sad about that for a week or so. But that happens with everything. I mean, you know, there's plenty of times where I would go up and talk to someone at an event in the NBA and they you know, worked for a team or even some of the media. And like, you have a blog, it's called the Team Rebound. Like, who the hell are you? Why should I talk to you? And you know, 50% of the time when you try to start a conversation with somebody, when you're at that level, that's what's going to happen. I sympathize with those people now because I'll get plenty of requests on Twitter every day. You know, hey, can you look at my writing or love your work or just people asking me a question or, or whatever. And I just don't have time to respond to all of them. So I don't think that it was anything where they're trying to big time me at all. And they probably should have been big timing me because I had no record. And I had my own site that had a stupid name. There are plenty of people that I've seen at probably five events, 10 events that, you know, I said hello to. And then the next time I would say hello, knowing that they didn't remember me from saying hello the last time. And finally, you just work your way into their consciousness and you're able to have a conversation with people that you never would have thought would have given you the time of day a few years ago. But it's definitely difficult to come and still even, you know, a lot of people have never heard of my podcast. I don't write for a huge outlet that people really know when I say, you know, I wrote for The Cauldron or Basketball Insiders. A lot of people haven't heard of those publications. You know, if I wrote for ESPN, it'd probably be a little bit easier. Right. So, I mean, every conversation that you have, there's always the idea that it could just be a setback and the person is just not going to know who are and try to get out of the conversation, which it doesn't mean they're a bad person. That's what a lot of people do because these people get annoyed by people wanting jobs or whatever on a regular basis. Can you take me to the story of the first podcast you put up? How'd it go for you? Yeah, we just recorded over Skype. Danny was really great with the technical stuff early on. This is Danny LaRue. Yeah, my very frequent co-host, and he was very supportive, obviously, in getting the show going, and he's indispensable. There's not a lot of people who are willing to start recording a podcast at midnight on the West Coast and have also watched all the games beforehand. <laughs> I mean, I had started talking to him about the concept of the show that we basically wanted to have a NBA podcast that if you listen to this show you basically would be up to date on everything that's happening in the NBA. It would be sort of the equivalent of a nightly highlight show, but a podcast. And we also would get into some deeper topics as well. And so, yeah, we recorded over Skype. Danny recorded. He was the one just putting the podcast up at that point because he wasn't working as a lawyer. I had to go to work the next day at 7.30 a.m., 8 a.m. You know, we'd finish recording at like 1.30 during that time. We wanted to start it right before the playoffs. So that's how it started. I mean, I didn't even have a mic. I was just recording on my computer. And then when people started complaining <laughs> about the audio quality, I soon realized that we needed to have a better <laughs> solution there for sure. But yeah, that's how it started. I mean, Danny was always the one to put the show up for maybe those first three months or so until, you know, I really started thinking of doing this full time. Was there a moment that you were like, hmm, we might be onto something here? Yeah, it was interesting. We had no idea how many people were listening for the first three months or so of the show. And then I think when we started really jumping up the iTunes rating, I had no idea that iTunes gives this huge boost to new shows. So at one point we were like number three 
in the iTunes sports ratings. And I was like, number three, that's amazing. But it was so weird seeing that and having no idea how many people actually were listening to the show at the time. And then also I got a call from SeatGeek as well because people there listened to the show and they were like, yeah, we'd like to sponsor you. How many people listen to your show? And I was like, oh, I should probably change to a platform <laughs> where I can tell how many people are listening to my show so I can actually hopefully make a living off of this thing. So I want to talk about the business stuff a little later, but I'm curious, how do you guys prepare to record a show? Sure. For example, when we were doing the off-season, like the mock off-season, that obviously just takes a ton of work. And you have to come up with plans for all the team and sort of what you think a good value would be for all the players. Those episodes take a ton of preparation. And then for just a game podcast, I'll probably start watching the games at about four and just taking notes throughout it or even, you know, I'll go back and look at some of my tweets as well. And then after that's done, maybe spend about probably... 30 minutes to an hour putting together an outline for the show. And I think that's really what differentiates our show is just that we put as much time into preparing the podcast as I think most writers put into writing an article. Whereas a lot of podcasts, it's just their main job is being a writer. And so they just come on the show and talk about what they talk about off the top of their head. And there's a lot of great shows that do it that way. But we wanted to really be like, all right, we want to enable you to download as much data about the NBA from our mouths to your brain as possible in a one hour or 90 minute show. How do you watch basketball? What's your setup? So I have two TVs, one on top of the other. And during the regular season, I'll usually have two games on and flip back and forth between whatever's interesting at the time. And I just try to find things that stick out to me, whether it's how players are being used, whether it's how good a certain player looks. I try to, even when we talk about a game during the regular season, I try to find things that, yeah, it's about this game, why one team lost, but that's only one game out of 82. So we want to try to take away what we can from those games that are going to apply either to just the league as a whole. Hey, here's an interesting tactic we're going to start seeing teams using or, hey, this guy looked awesome. Like maybe this means he's turning the corner. We try to extrapolate more out of those games to where it really applies more to the league as a whole or at least a team season as a whole. How important is Danny to the show to you or having a co-host, someone to bounce your ideas off of? He's indispensable. I mean, like I said, the fact that he was willing to just start doing this project with no idea that we were ever going to make any money off of it and to just put in all this time watching games, doing an outline, doing some of the technical stuff. I mean, you look at someone who's on the West Coast, willing to put the work in even this late at night, knows as much about the cap in the league as he does. I mean, I don't think there's anybody else out there who's like that, really. So how many listeners does it take to make money from a sports podcast? Are you willing to share how many people listen to your show? So during the off-season, July or so, the best episodes were getting like 60, and we're getting between like 45 and 60, which is fantastic, especially considering we were recording every day. We're, I never would have thought we would get to that level. I mean, it all depends, too, how well you monetize it. And this is 45 and 60,000 people that download the episode the day after you put it up on the internet. Yeah, I mean, usually the lifetime of our shows, a lot of them are pretty topical. Some of them will stay green for longer, but generally the bulk of our listens will come within two days of the show being posted, especially if it's during the playoffs or as signings are occurring. And so there's new news coming in. You know, if it's something like, hey, we're going to rank the 100 greatest players of all time, that can be something that'll stay green for longer. But yeah, it's usually that type of time frame for us. 
So when I listen to your podcast, you have a motley crew of advertisers. It's not the usual suspects. So could you walk me through how you've identified these companies that are paying you essentially to do reads in the middle of your show? Yeah, it has been interesting. Now I'm working with a company called Midroll, which is one of the most respected podcast advertising companies, and they have pre-existing relationships and are introducing me to some other products. Obviously, before I actually have the product on the show, we test it out and make sure that it's something that we feel like we can get behind. Because as you probably know, too, research has shown that when you do podcast advertising, it takes on more of an endorsement type of quality because hopefully your listeners listen to you and trust you. I take that trust very seriously and I want to make sure that, you know, I, I treat it almost like I'm giving the product a review in the ads more than just how, oh, hey, they're paying me to just read this thing. You know, it's been kind of the ones that we weren't as enthusiastic about. So I have now focusing on ones where we definitely have turned down advertisers that we didn't feel like we could be enthusiastic about because, you know, I feel if I'm recommending something, it should be something that I think is awesome. They will bring me stuff. I had Blog Talk Radio doing my ads before that. They would bring me stuff on occasion. But Early on, it was mostly me just going out of my way and trying to find companies that I really liked, products that I really liked that I thought were kind of revolutionary products like Helix Sleep, for example, is a mattress company that my girlfriend and I bought the mattress beforehand. And then I was like, they're a startup. Did you send them an email or? Well, no, I think I actually just either tweeted at or DM'd their Twitter account initially. Huh. That 3D body scanner that we have on there, I became aware of that and I actually got in touch with the CEO who was still at the point where he was actually sending out emails to every person who bought one himself saying, here's what the deal is, here's how you redeem it. That So I just responded to that email and said, hey, I have a show. I'd love to come check out the product. I had already ordered one. So we have a, a good relationship now. So those, those are some of the stories of just, I mean, I had time during the day. I needed to not starve. And so I was like, all right, I need to go out and try and find some sponsors here. How did you know how to negotiate? The numbers I find on the internet say that you get 1000 dollars for 40,000 downloads or something like that? With some of the companies that I was working with and also just some research, you find that like podcast CPM. So basically like cost per thousand is the way that they do it. So usually CPMs are a mid-roll, which is a read in the middle of the show. And you can get maybe from like on the lower end, $15 per thousand listeners up to maybe 25 if you're at the level of show. I mean, some of the crazy shows that get hundreds of thousands or millions of listeners, they're at a much higher level than that. But you could do the math on that for what each ad might be worth. But that's a certain kind of ads from more established companies. Some of the less established companies, we just arrived at more of a CPA model, which is basically you get a percentage of each actual sale that comes from there. Those are a little bit less desirable if you're a podcaster, because obviously advertising has more of an impact than simply just, okay, we got a direct sale from this because people have now heard of the company and that's worth something too. With our listenership, we are doing okay now, but we still would like to get more sponsors on. And I think it's a little bit different for us because most podcasts, there's one episode per week or so. What we'd like to do, we think is fair, is like one pre-roll beforehand and then two mid-rolls. We think that over an hour show, that's not particularly obtrusive because radio has 20 minutes of commercials per hour. So if we have three minutes of commercials per hour, that's you know not too much of an imposition on our listeners. We don't have that many yet. We'd like to have more. So if you're listening and you're an advertiser, feel free to get in touch with me. My email is in my Twitter bio. <laughs> but we're doing okay now. But with the level of listenership that we've grown to over the past you know two, three, four months or so, we should be able to start doing better 
but it's a question of actually getting those advertisers on there. And with the number of shows that we have, I think that could be a lot of work. Depends on what kind of fans you're collecting, I suppose. Yeah. And I think our demographics are pretty good. We did that survey a little bit ago, which our listeners were awesome at. Can you describe how you did that that process? I thought that was fascinating. You did a drive. Basically, you advertised for yourself on your show for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that. I think it was only we did like maybe three or four episodes. It was important because we got that survey. And number one, just being able to take our demographics to advertisers, but also to be able to see what the response rate is was perhaps even more enlightening. And we got a 14% response rate when the typical podcast gets 2 to 8%. I believe in transparency about all this type of stuff. I really like that. And so I said, hey, this is what the typical podcast gets in terms of response rate. Like, hey, dunked on listeners, can we beat this? And it was really touching to me to see how many people, to say that like 14% of people that listen to the show actually responded to the survey was unbelievable to me. I was really touched by that. And that's been instrumental in helping to get more sponsors for us. And also, I think our demographics are really good too. We just, the nature of the content, I think it's like, the sort of people who are interested in that level of detail are people who you know are kind of smart, professional people who are also interested in trying to find new solutions or are willing to be early adopters and try new products in their personal life as well. And so I think that's why some of these sort of more, I guess you could say less traditional products that we've advertised on the show have done well because I think our listenership is open to those sorts of things. You came from a career that's traditionally attached with a lot of prestige. Like if you say that at a cocktail party, people would nod their heads and say, yeah, well, great job, Nate. How do people respond now when you tell them, you know, I have this podcast about the NBA? It's interesting. A lot of people who don't know anything about the NBA don't really understand it at all, especially people who are kind of the older generation from mine who don't really listen to podcasts or even necessarily know what they are. And you have to kind of explain that. Everyone thinks it's really cool that you know, I'm able to kind of be living my dream right now. I think that's everyone's really happy for that. And then, you know, a lot of people just want to talk NBA. And that's always cool, too, when I tell them that. But it's definitely interesting saying that instead of, oh, I'm a lawyer. It's just nice. Like, I just have a lot more confidence when I'm just even introducing myself to the average person because I love what I do. And I feel good talking about it. Whereas when I was a lawyer, I just didn't really enjoy talking about it that much. Now, being able to do something like this and have not everybody, but a fair amount of people be interested in it, like, it's kind of cool. So if you got the chance to run it back from the beginning, what would you have done differently this past year? We would have tried to improve the audio quality earlier. I think I just didn't realize what an issue that was. That would be a huge one. I guess we would have started already on a platform right away where we could have had metrics. I thought this was just going to sort of be a lark and maybe it could be something that would boost my writing career or whatever. I wish I would have approached it right away as, okay, this is a business. This could be something that actually would be the way that you're going to have your primary means of support. My motivation at the start was just, I want to just make something that people would want to listen to and that I felt was filling a niche in basketball podcasting that nobody else was. So I wish I would have approached it a little bit more from a business angle, but that's maybe, I hope it's not too arrogant to say I wouldn't want to change that much, but I'm just really happy doing what I'm doing. So I can't really say that, to be honest. Well, Nate, thanks for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it, too. Hey, a big thanks to Nate for coming on the show. It was really exciting. Like, it was one of the joys of running this program and of the last few episodes, getting to reach out to people that we truly admire and follow people that have turned their passion into businesses and just talked to them on the phone. In fact, 
I talked to Nate a lot longer, and I'll post that part of the conversation after the outro music. So if you're interested in basketball like I am, you follow the NBA, or you're just curious about what a smart guy like Nate has to say about the league, I ask him some basketball-specific questions after the outro music. You can also check out all the links to this episode at tropicalmba.com slash basketball. Yeah, just a comment on this episode. I just think it's so cool that if you have passion, interests, and you can bring a lot of value to a big addressable market like NBA fans, you can turn it into something. You can open up your laptop, fire up your microphone, and yes, it's incredible hustle. It's an incredible amount of work. It's obvious that Nate is an incredible hard worker, but he's a professional podcaster, and I think that's pretty cool. Again, the link's tropicalmba.com slash basketball, and we'll have some basketball talk after the music. We'll be back next Thursday morning. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I would love to impress you with clever basketball questions, but for the benefit of the listeners who don't, on an addictive nature, listen to your podcast on a daily basis, I'm going to ask you some questions about the NBA, some of which you might have answered in the past. So the first one is this. What rule change would you most like to see in the NBA? Oh, that's easy. I would like to see them move the charge circle out. For those who don't watch basketball that much, there's a circle under the basket that I think has a radius of three feet where you cannot be called for an offensive foul if you make contact with someone down there. There are some exceptions to that, but that's the short way to look at it. And we see all the time players get hurt when they jump in the air and guys undercut them. And so if you move that circle out far enough to where if someone is going to take a charge, which is basically you jump in front of the player and fall down and the rough rules that he ran you over, which I think is kind of dumb anyway, but at least if guys are going to do that, now you have to do it far enough out that you would make contact with the guy before he takes off and gets in the air and can really, you know, get undercut and hurt himself or, you know, land on someone's foot and sprain an ankle. So that would be my number one thing. I mean, I'd like to just get rid of that call, the charge call almost entirely but that's not realistic. Coaches would never agree to that. So I think a way to accomplish many of the same objectives that people would actually agree to is just pushing that circle out a little bit further so that you don't have guys getting undercut in the air. That's probably would be the number one. And I'm surprised that you see this as an issue. It seems like you're more focused on it than a lot of writers. Like It's not a common answer to that question. I just think jumping in front of somebody falling down and hoping that the referee blows his whistle instead of actually like trying to stop him by playing defense is just kind of dumb. Do we want to see the whistle blow more often on this kind of technicality or do we want to see a great play? I mean, what makes basketball great probably more than anything is guys trying to go up and dunk or shoot a layup and someone trying to block the shot. That's the most exciting play probably in basketball. And instead you're taking away 10 of those per game, maybe not that many, but probably at least five to a guy trying to fall down on his butt and hope that the referee <laughs> agrees that he was barely in front of the guy instead of still moving when he tried to jump in front of him and fall down. We recently were watching the Olympics. I'm curious, what do you think is better or worse about FIBA play from a rules perspective? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think there probably should just be any zone defense should be allowed. Like in FIBA in the NBA, they have the defense of three seconds in the NBA. So big slow centers can't just camp out in the lane. And I would actually say even that a lot of big guys are kind of being minimized to the point now we talked on our show about how centers there are just too many centers on the market guys who you would have thought were good players in previous eras who just because of the way the game is going there in some ways dinosaurs and so allowing those guys to just be a little bit more effective but you still have to guard the three-point line and not have to leave the rim as much not have to get over from outside of the lane that would be fine it also just takes away a needless area of complication you also would just have more diversity in defenses teams could play zone a little bit more i think that would be something that would be useful so that's better about fiba i like the nba three-point line being longer that provides for more space it's a harder shot i think the fiba line is still too short for at least the level of players that we have in the nba maybe it's better for them and then knocking the ball off the rim i think they should experiment with that because in fiba play once the ball hits the rim but hasn't gone in yet the defense can just knock it off the rim or the offense can. I think what I would like to see in the NBA is you can offensive goaltend whenever you want, but you can't necessarily defensive goaltend. Like what advantage are you gaining if you can get there to the rim and dunk this shot down or tip it in before it goes in? Like you're not really gaining an unfair advantage there. The defense still should have to box you out. And that would also lead to some really cool, more tip dunks as well. And then offensive goaltending is also really, really hard to determine when someone has done it or not. So that's another one where I think it would both be simpler, lead to a lot cooler plays, and wouldn't really give an unfair advantage. With NBA athletes knocking the ball off the rim, that might lead to just a lot of plays where shots that used to go in before wouldn't. The big guys are so much more athletic than in FIBA play or EuroLeague or something. So I think those are the two that I'd like to see implemented in NBA. Your favorite basketball journalist? Outside of Daniel LaRue, of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably Kevin Pelton. He and Zach Lowe are are the ones that I would look at. Zach, I think, does the storytelling better, the quotes better. Kevin, just his statistical resources are invaluable. He's funny. He comes to my show all the time. I think every episode that we do with him is awesome. He's got a great knowledge of history as well. He's really good with the cap stuff. He just has a great all-around skill set. Those would be the two, but Kevin in particular, especially because of what he adds to the show whenever he's willing to come on, would be who I'd point to. When are you and Zach going to get together for the ultimate two-on-two team? I hope it'll happen at some point. It's got to happen. As Bill Simmons used to joke about, you know, actors who were unemployed, I'm available. (laughs) (laughs) Best book about basketball? I don't know if it's even the best book about basketball, but certainly the one that I think influenced me the most was The Jordan Rules by Sam Smith. I grew up in Chicago. My dad got me that book for Christmas in 1991. It's a book about the Bulls' first championship season with Michael Jordan. And while it did sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on the hagiography that had been Michael Jordan coverage to that point, it was fascinating for me to read. I thought that just the way that it celebrated team play and the triangle and also just noted that you could have internal strife and then still come together as a team to be effective. I thought those are things that I kind of took with me for the rest of my life. And it was also just, you know, a great book about a subject that I love. So that, that's probably what I, I wouldn't say it's the best book from just, you know, a literary critic standpoint, but certainly the one probably that influenced me the most. Favorite b-ball pod that's not yours. Let me open up my podcatcher here so I can make sure that I don't miss any because I love a bunch. Obviously, Danny's show is great. Real GM Radio. 
Zach's show is fantastic. The True Hoop podcast is fantastic as well. David Locke's show both is locked on NBA and also his Locked on Jazz. That was actually another really influential podcast for me. He records early in the morning. If you haven't listened to his show, he's the jazz radio broadcaster. He recorded basically daily, only for about 20 minutes or so, on what was going on with the jazz. And I felt like, number one, I wasn't going to get up at 5 in the morning to do mine. I was all right recording late at night. And the idea of sort of doing a daily wrap-up show about the NBA, but we definitely borrowed a lot of the themes, a lot of the format early on from what he was doing. So that's one that's indispensable. Those are probably the main ones that I would look at. What are the odds that LeBron will be widely considered the GOAT in 2025? 15%. If they were able to beat the Warriors again this year somehow, and he played the same way that he played in the finals last year, that ups significantly, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. And we'll see. I mean, the fact that he's able to maintain this performance, but what people don't remember is Michael Jordan was MVP of the finals at 35. He was probably still the best player in the league at 35 in 1998 when he retired. Part of that was an artifact of history due to expansion and some weak drafts in the late 80s, early 90s. But nonetheless, you know, nobody's going to remember that anymore. And, you know, being six for six in the NBA finals as well. But I think if he can get up to four championships, and I certainly am willing to say that just in a vacuum, LeBron is a better basketball player than Jordan just because of the way that basketball has evolved. I think we're just better at basketball, like, most things as humans than we were 20 years ago but in terms of just like what the overall conception of him is i think he would still be very hard pressed to beat jordan but if he wins one more championship especially when you consider that he's got this golden state team to go against again in the other conference then it maybe it probably does start to become a conversation what is the biggest home court advantage in the nba that is a tough one having not been to all of the arenas during the playoffs that's a tough one to say There was a time, maybe in 2015, I might have said Oracle Arena, I think that their crowd took a little bit of a step back at times this last playoffs. I will say that probably the best crowd that I've heard in an NBA game was games three and four in Oklahoma City in that Golden State series when Oklahoma City just a hurricane destroying the Warriors and and the way their crowd was. That was definitely up there. But, you know, who knows how they'll kind of be now. That's a tough question. I'm not really sure who I would go with at this point. There are a few good crowds. Utah can be good when they get going. Portland can be good when they get going. I guess you would have to just still look at Golden State, but I don't think there is an easy answer to that one. And maybe Oklahoma City will be so agreed with the loss of Durant that they just take it to another level this year. I know Anthony Slater thinks that's probably what's going to happen. The former Oklahoman writer, now Bay Area news group writer. I guess it's 2BD still. Should the NBA be expanded? Should is such an interesting way of looking at it. I think they could make more money probably at this point if they expanded. And I think in any economic enterprise, that's what it's there for. Being an American and a capitalist, you always think that making more money, as long as you don't have any other externalities, is a good thing. I do think that we have reached the point where there are a lot of good players And there's enough money around the league, too. There's still players in the EuroLeague that I think would be good, could be good NBA players. I wouldn't want it to be by more than two more teams. And also, everybody's making so much money now, too. It wouldn't be an issue of, oh, these teams are going to dilute the pot so much that more teams start losing money because the national TV deal is so large at this point. And I would like to see Seattle have a team. There are also certain markets where maybe the team should be moved to Seattle. I think just selfishly, as a fan, I probably wouldn't want to see it other than because of the Seattle thing, because it's just more teams, more players, the quality of basketball would get slightly lower. We already have 82 games where they're, it's just impossible to compete at the absolute highest level every night over 82 games. 
I personally would prefer that they didn't, but I'm not going to say that they should or shouldn't. Seattle fans got let down, but the team certainly didn't, arriving in OKC, being welcomed. Which city doesn't deserve their team right now? You're basically trying to reduce my podcast audience by 1 30th here. Is that what you're doing to me? I didn't even write this question down. It popped into my head. <laughs> doesn't deserve their team. I mean, how would you even determine, like, what would be the criteria for determining whether a city doesn't deserve a team? I've always felt like because they don't like pony up a bunch of public money for a stadium, well, you know, I think it's a private enterprise. I don't begrudge teams that are able to negotiate those deals. Well, you could look at whether or not the fans come to the games. You know, for example, Phoenix, right? I think people have thought that those fans have not been very supportive. They also have had an owner who has cut costs at times, and they haven't been in the playoffs since 2010. For a team to expect that people are going to show up and that you're going to make a ton of money even when you're not being successful on the floor. I don't think that's fair to say, oh, well, the fans don't deserve the team because they're not supporting a bad team. I'm trying to think if there are good teams that aren't being supported, maybe you could look at Atlanta as one of those that doesn't get as much support maybe as their success over the last eight or nine years might indicate that they should have. I mean, I'm trying to think of other good teams that don't really get as much following as they should. The Pacers always are kind of at the bottom of the league in profits, but they have a good home crowd during the playoffs when they're good. But yeah, they definitely are a team that doesn't get a ton of support when they're not good. I mean, other than that, you're looking at teams, the Sixers, they've been moribund for a while. It's a huge market. It is a passionate basketball market when they're good. I wouldn't say that there's anyone that would fall into that category for me, really, to be honest. Who do you think will surprise fans most the next season? Which team? Similar to maybe a Charlotte this year. Ooh. Yeah, I haven't started thinking about this too much. Let me think about it. Some potential candidates, maybe I'll just kind of run through them and then we can narrow it down. Denver, I think, is one that could surprise people, especially if Wilson Chandler can come back healthy. I think the Pacers in the negative direction could surprise people. I think Minnesota, but I mean, a lot of people are saying already that they could be pretty good. Actually, maybe the Pelicans would be one if they can actually stay healthy. If you could guarantee me that Anthony Davis would be healthy and playing at his usual level next year. And he supposedly has started on-court activities and is supposed to be back for training camp, but you never know when someone comes off a surgery. I would say New Orleans, maybe. Maybe they could have a better defense than people expect and kind of sneak into the bottom of that West playoff picture if they're healthy. But, you know, that's always a question with the Pelicans. What is your favorite NBA uniform? By the way, this is super fun for me. (laughs) (laughs) The Bulls red road uniforms would be up there for me. Warriors blue uniforms would be up there for me. And the blue, the city throwbacks, not the yellow ones. I think those are pretty ugly, but the blue ones are pretty good. I like the jazz a lot now that they have gone away from the mountains. I think they have a very nice kind of simple uniform. And then among kind of the less classic designs, I would say the Raptors. The Raptors, just white home uniforms, the new ones that they started last year, I like a lot. Who's got the prettiest shot in the NBA? Clay Thompson. All right. There's a million bucks on the line. And you have to construct a three-man... This is my final question. (laughs) You have to construct a three-man half-court team around yourself. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay? So you're the team captain, and you get to choose two players. Who would you choose? Are we just playing at the Y, or are we playing against, like, other NBA players? (laughs) They have these, like, three-on-three tournaments around the world, you know? And so I don't know what rule system we're playing under. But assume that anybody could show up. We're talking pros from Europe. Could be semi-pro guys. Okay. Could be some stragglers from the NBA showing up. But you got to go in there with a lot on the line, and you want to win. 
All right. I think our idea would be that we would want to be able to switch as much as possible. Like a pick and roll in three on three is, you know, way more unstoppable than in five on five. So LeBron James would be one of them for sure. Let's see. I mean, I probably would want another wing. Anthony Davis would be one if he were healthy. I know he's not a wing. Kawhi Leonard would be up there. Kevin Durant. I'd probably say LeBron James and Kevin Durant would probably be it, I think. That'll do. And what are the odds the Warriors will win the championship in 2017? Eh, 65%, we'll say. You gave Team USA 60%, and they won by 30 points. Well, that was because they only had three games to win. And they also playing terrible for the first pool play. So I would say... Yeah, because over the course of an NJ season, it's just injuries. I mean, I think if you could guarantee me that their five best guys would be healthy all throughout the playoffs, I would probably be 80%, 85%. But you just don't know if one of their best guys gets injured. If Draymond Green goes down or if Kevin Durant goes down or Steph or even Clay, like any one of those guys, and then it becomes a lot more difficult for them. Most of that variability is just injuries and a long NBA season, that kind of stuff. If we were starting the playoffs and they were all healthy, I would probably put it at 80. It's interesting to think about. You guys often like will analyze the game from first principles. I don't think much is sad about the NBA, but injuries is one of the things that jumps into my head. And you wonder, like, if you were just designing the ideal league, you know, if you weren't thinking about money, you wouldn't need these guys to be playing 82 games, would you? No, I don't think so. And thinking about money, it's a very interesting question of, whether they would, in fact, make more money with less games. Obviously, the NFL makes a lot of money with less games, makes more money than the NBA does, even though they only play 16 during the regular season. The way I would do it would basically do two games a week or close to that and just play every team twice over the same amount of period that this season is now. Reduce the preseason, maybe even make it longer. So you just have less of a chance for injuries. You still spread out the games so that you've got games most nights that you can watch or maybe you even fix it so you have there are only four days a week that you have games on it can kind of become more of appointment viewing the way that the nfl is i don't know how you would study this i'm not sure how much the league has studied it but i think it's just as plausible as implausible that they could make the same if not more money with less games and just charge more money for them or you know get more money on tv for them because it's a rarer commodity.